Welcome back, storytellers. This is your host, Yin Chang. Guess what? We are reaching our five-year milestone this Saturday, August 8th. I cannot believe we are here in this moment. Thank you so much to each and every one of you who have been there for us and been listening in, hanging out with us since uh, five years ago. And thank you so much to all of you new, wonderful, beautiful listeners for joining our community. I am truly so grateful and lucky to have you here with us. I really want to commemorate this moment with our community. So if you haven't RSVP'd to our five-year anniversary online party yet, be sure to sign up by heading over to 88cupsoftea.com slash RSVP. I cannot wait to see you there. Now for our show today, I am continuing our conversation with Molly O'Neill, the literary agent from Root Literary. We recorded this conversation back on February 29th, and I am so thrilled we get to finally share this with you. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, I highly recommend tuning into our last episode to get all caught up on Molly's journey to becoming a literary agent at Root Literary. Some of Molly's books by the authors that she represents have gone on to become number one New York Times bestsellers, have been made into major motion pictures, and received countless awards, honors, and accolades. So part two of our conversation, we jump right back into talking about how she discovers and pursues new writing talent and matches them with the best editors to help their stories come alive. Molly shares how an author's social media presence and writing competition victories can be a path to grabbing a literary agent's attention. But it's not the only journey that an aspiring author has to take, and that actually spending your energy on making your writing the best it can be is the most important aspect. Further in, we talk about the query letters that have stood out to her the most, and she shares tips for improving your own query letters. She goes over helpful writing and publishing resources that you don't want to miss. And we also talk about how supporting and contributing to the publishing community will help you create connections and opportunities. We even get into the small financial moves to make when you receive your first book advance. And later on, we talk about how your relationship with writing can change when your writing hobby turns into your job, along with the role self-awareness plays as you're trying to reach your writing goals and the strategies for finding inspiration and uncovering the stories that you are meant to tell. All right, now let's jump right in. How do you find these talent? I'm very curious about that. A large percentage of my list did the traditional querying thing. Mm. They showed up in my inbox. I never knew who they were until that very moment. And their their writing did the work for them. So I don't want to discount that as a way to find an agent for the writers who are listening. Because I think that is the tritest and truest way is by letting an agent read your writing. Because at the end of the day, that's what they're going to sell is your writing. They're not going to sell even your query letter. <laughs> like mm. it's, it's the writing has to do the work. But I, I think it boils down to I am a curious person. And so I'm always poking around different communities and different digital spaces and physical spaces. So like when I think about my list and this also, you know, sort of bends backwards to my list when I was an editor, while I had some authors who had come to me through agents, that was the era of blogs, everybody had a blog. Mm. So I found some writers through their blogs, because in in the old school version of blogging, instead of the micro version we have today, 
you really could get a sense of someone's voice as a writer, their, their abilities as a writer. So occasionally I would find writers through their blogs and say like, Hey, have you ever thought about writing children's books? Or, you know, you already have a voice that sounds like it could be a young adult character, or maybe you're writing a persona, writing this blog. Let's clearly, you know what it is to put on a character and, and write that way. I have writers I've found through Twitter. I have illustrators that I've found in any number of places. You know, they'll do an editorial illustration for a website or a newspaper or even on Instagram. And I look at that and see like, there's a story inside of this single illustration. This is a person who can create narrative inside of art, which is really compelling. I have clients who, gosh, I heard one speak at a conference that I went to. It wasn't even a writer's conference. I find it interesting to think about like people who have expertise in other spaces. Okay. How do we take the things they're already doing in the community that they've maybe already built? I have, I have several clients on my list who are educators who are really well known in the education community and particularly in the space where the educator community and like the literary communities overlap. I represent Colby Sharp and John Shu and Donalyn Miller and oh. Pernil Rip, all of whom are important educators in that space, but who have learned a lot and do a lot of educating around the importance of books. And it's, it was like, okay, these are people who already have a built-in audience. Like let's, let's throw a book of their own into the flywheel instead of them only ever talking about other people's books. And now what does that start to look like? So if they never had an idea about a book, you kind of like plant that seed and you're like, hey, for example, like John Shu, you know, you've got such a huge presence with the libraries, right? Mm -hmm. That's the John Shu we're talking about. And so then let's just say if he didn't have an idea, then you being his agent would be like, you know, John, there's this awesome idea you could explore because you already have that audience who would love to hear more about that. Is that something you do or you're allowed to do or you're able to do like I'm not even sure how how much are agents able to be like hey here's a seed run with it or like how much you can push them to go that route because you know there's so much potential in what it is that you see so it's it's a good question and and I think I'll also say that not every agent works this way some agents really want the thing to arrive to them fully baked For me, and I think this is because my background is as a developer of stories, as an editor. So for me, it's it's sort of a trade-off of I could be an agent who is waiting for the thing to show up in my inbox that's amazing, but that, you know, is also in 17 other agent inboxes. And then we're going to have to have, we call it a beauty pageant where like (laughs) all the agents try to woo the single author. And, you know, statistically you only win a certain percentage of those. Yes, I would rather (laughs) sort of stealth mode, find talented writers and slowly work behind the scenes. Not, not that I would rather. Sometimes I do yes. this, I guess, is, is the more accurate statement. But, you know, we will develop something behind the scenes. And maybe that takes some time. But it is then I don't have to fight someone off for it. And along the way, I have built an understanding of who they are as a writer and how they work, which then helps me pair them with really the best editor I can think of who works in that particular way. You know, so like if I have a writer who's very systematic and very, you know, type A, then there's a certain kind of editor who's going to 
work best with their brain. Yes. If I have an editor who I know is a terrible communicator on the phone and, and much better in writing, and I have an author who's terrified of phone calls, then <laughs> that might be a good match, you know? So it helps me be able to accurately find the best publishing home for them. You know, part of what editors will often ask us as agents when they have something they like is like, oh, is she open to revision? You know, or is, is this writer someone who's good at that? And as an agent, you're always going to say yes. Like, of course, they're amazing. But I feel like I can say it with a little bit more accuracy and honesty of like, yes, I've actually seen them through, you know, three revisions of this. And I can tell you exactly this and that about how their brains work. And it, it kind of just makes the whole process work a little bit more organically. The caveat, of course, is as an agent, I work on commission. Mm, so I right. can only have so many of those things that I'm sort of slowly baking in the background right. at a time because I I need to be selling projects. So I sort of always have an antenna up for, okay, is now the time to say, let's come work on that idea that you've probably been carrying around this whole time mm. and have never told anyone? Or is it me just saying, you know, if you ever want to write a book someday, I'm here. You know, like there's sort of different different ways to connect with clients. Mm. With someone like John Shu, I mean, I, I sort of joke that many of my clients are, are long cons. I first met John when he was a young school librarian who had brought a group of students to the first public event that Veronica Roth ever did as an Aww. author. And we sort of struck up a rapport because he was clearly such a passionate educator and his group of kids. It was, I, I will always remember this event. It was at Anderson's bookstore and it was the first time Veronica was talking about Divergent. It hadn't even been published yet, but Anderson's had distributed a bunch of early copies of the books to readers in the community. And most of the readers who showed up for it were like preteen, early teen girls. And they wanted to talk about the romance. Four, four, four. <laughs> we want to talk about four. And then was this table of boys who was a little bit younger, you know, they were probably more like 11 years old and they wanted to talk about, okay, so where in Chicago is Amity headquarters and where, <laughs> where in Chicago, like, does this scene happen? And also, can we talk about the guns they're using? <laughs> it was just like this clear, clear divide of, what uh, different readers were taking away from this series. But so I met John then wow. and we sort of struck up a rapport and stayed in touch. And when I was an editor, I used to say to him, wow, do you ever want to write books of your own? And, you know, he would always sort of deflect, deflect. And 10 years later, when he decided he was ready to start writing books of his own, he came to me and said, you've, you've encouraged this for a long time. I think I'm ready to try. And in his case, it was partly the fact that I've known him as long as I have and understand what makes him tick as a human that has helped us sort of dig in deep and find the books of his heart that he's been meant to tell. Molly, I gotta say, I have so much admiration for your entrepreneurial spirit, your very go-getter attitude, and being able to connect the dots. Like you were saying, you love that early stage project development. And you know, at least maybe it's my memories being foggy, but I don't really remember talking to anybody that's talked about investing their time in people as their clients who have not had anything yet, but have been like, hey, tap, 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 tap. 
You ready yet? You ready yet? You ready? <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's kind of cool. I think that's pretty cool. I think agents are kind of icebergs. Like you really only mm. see like 10% of what we're doing yes, <laughs> at, any, at any time. And everything else is happening underneath and behind the scenes. And, you know, some of it is long cons and, and relationships and having a sense of here's a person who clearly has a voice and what's going to be, you know, the moment in time where that needs to come out. I have another client who I, I first met her 10, 12 years ago as an author and now she's my client. And in between she had a different agent, she published a book. I wore all these different hats. And then when it was time she came to me, you know, with a different project actually and said, you know, I have this one. And I said, oh, I don't think that's it. What else do you have? You know, so it's yeah. relationship based. But I, I also, you know, I'm aware of your your audience listening and I don't want them to get the false two false ideas. I don't want them to think that, you know, like showing up in an agent's inbox and being like, I might have a book someday (laughs) is really how this happens. I think, you know, when, when I think of all of the clients that I have sought out, it's because they're, they're doing something out in the world already. Like they've built up a community or they've been expressing their voice as a public speaker or as a writer of magazine articles, or there's something that they are doing that indicates to me that, okay, if we, if we turn the attention toward a different kind of writing, or we use your audience in this new way, that's what's going to unlock the books. It's not just, I have this hope. So will you sign me as a client? Because that that's unfortunately not how it happens. <laughs> Thank goodness the community is very, very good about like making sure they don't ever approach literary agents unless they have something to show for and properly querying. Actually, there were two listener questions that actually directly tie in with what you were mentioning earlier. And I'm going to ask their questions out loud just to see if there's anything else that comes up for you. One is from Maureen McCall. She said, hi, I was wondering if you could ask Molly how much an author's social media matters to an agent when it comes to choosing someone to represent. Do things like competition wins make a difference? Thank you so much for taking the time to enlighten us all. And right along the same lines, because you were just also talking about blogs, Emily Stevens jumped in and said, I second this question and I think Relatedly, how important is it to have an up and running blog as well? Thank you. Yeah, I think that that sort of illuminates a truth of publishing is that what worked yesterday isn't always what works tomorrow. And and right. when we talk about marketing in general, the minute something works for one author, it's like it's got a shelf life and it it starts ticking and it's it's only going to work a few more times because then it just becomes ordinary. You know, I, I think a great example of this is some years back when John Green was a hot YA author mm-hmm. with a vlog that the whole industry had started listening to. He decided to do this thing that no one had ever done, which was he was going to sign the first the full first print run, or it was all the pre-orders or something, but basically he committed to autographing just a huge number of books to help drive the sales. And very quickly that became ordinary. And now it's a really common thing for big authors to, you know, sign the the first page and, and, you know, they do this by shipping actual, not the whole book, but like cartons of pages to the authors that they've signed that then get bound into the books. And 
what was once this big marketing effort that had a real impact, I'm sure, on that particular book, once it became just this is one more ordinary thing that gets done, people just sort of expect it. And it's like, okay, now we've all just made more work for ourselves. Yeah. Thanks, John Green. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't necessarily move the needle in the same way. Or, you know, back when when blogs or YouTube videos or, you know, all of the different things that have happened, like, yes, there's a couple of people who figure out how to maximize those to their absolute benefit. And often they're the, the early adopters who figured out how am I going to use this tool to find an audience and do the particular things that I'm trying to do. But then if you're just someone who's trying to imitate someone else's success, it's not always going to have the same effects or the same impact, which is a long way of saying, I don't think you need to have a blog to be a writer. Social platform is a great thing if you have it. I've just signed up a writer recently who's a picture book author who has a presence in the mom blog community, the sort of Instagram influencer community, and actually have several clients like that who who have a known brand that they their community gathers around Instagram. I have another one who's an illustrator whose whose handle is Mom is Drawing. She started drawing when her first daughter was born <laughs> as sort of an outlet and has gathered a community of other young moms. So when her first book comes out this summer, she's got a built-in audience. So like mm. that's great. We're not going to say never mind, we won't use them. Like of course publishing goes like, "Oh, that helps us more clearly understand what the potential sales of this book could look like if we know that at least a fraction of that existing audience is potentially going to buy this book. But it's not the thing that makes or breaks it usually. In in adult nonfiction, that's completely opposite. Mm. In adult nonfiction, often people are buying the book because of yes. the brand or because of the YouTube channel or because of the expertise, you know, because this is person is writing about whatever topic and they are a known expert on it, it's right. essential because that's sort of the whole point of the book is we're saying this person is an expert on this topic and that's why you should buy their, their book. As a fiction writer, the thing that it's your job to be expert on is your story mm. and your characters. And that at the end of the day is what people are buying ahead of you as an author, usually until you become well known. And then, you know, the goal is, of course, that you're so well known that people will buy anything you write. But initially, the thing to spend your energy on is writing a book that's irresistible. Okay. So then does that mean that winning competitions make a difference? You know, it's an interesting question, because there's been this big trend in the last couple of years toward things online like pitch wars and DV pit and all of these Twitter competitions. I think they are one road to getting attention. Competitions, I think is, is kind of a broad category. It depends a little bit what we're talking about, mm. but I'm never going to sign someone simply because they want a competition. Right. When it's someone who is showing up in my inbox it's always about the caliber of the writing. You know, even if they've written the best query letter in the world, I'm not selling your query letter, which to me is a little bit of the the thing with the, the Twitter pitch contests that have gotten very popular is that writing writing a 280 character pitch 
is intrinsically different than writing a novel. So it might hint that there's an interesting idea there, but mm-hmm. the writing has to deliver, the plotting has to deliver all of that. So what about, you know, like there's, there's those um, before all of these like pitches and all these um, that are more of a recent. Uh, I remember back in the day when I was in college, people would talk about trying to submitting for what was like short story prizes and they were from very recognizable names. And I honestly cannot remember any on the, off the top of my head right now, but are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. So I, I think what, what we're actually sort of getting at is in different parts of writing, different things matter. Right. So in the adult literary fiction world, there's all these literary journals. It's gone out of existence now, but the one that I remember from my undergrad days was called Glimmer Train or literary journal that, that published short fiction. And it, it really the same idea as what long form blogging used to do. It was a, an obvious place for agents and editors to go get a peek of short writing done by people who aimed to eventually do longer writing. Mm. So literary journals were a bit of a shortcut to getting an agent because if you were published in one of these journals or you won their big prize, you could pretty much guarantee that agents and editors were going to pay attention to that. Can I clarify, what do you mean when you say known brand slash influence? What are the numbers we're talking about? I think that's one of those things that hard to put a number around it. And in fact, Mm. putting a number around it at first when social media was a thing, I think publishing got really excited because it was like, oh, like we can quantify. Quantifying isn't something that publishing is always very good at because we're yeah. generally in the business of abstract ideas. <laughs> but what we've learned over time and as social media has evolved is number of followers is a thing that only tells you so much, partly because we've learned that can be manipulated. You can buy followers. And What's more important is the engagement that's happening. Mm. And is this someone who really has built a community among their followers or they simply have a bunch of followers? And is it something that can be translated? If you have a following for your beautiful photos, that doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to spend $17.99, $18.99 on a book about a completely different topic. Mm. So I think it's with, within reason. You know, my my example earlier of I have a couple of clients who have a strong following of young moms makes sense because they are writing and illustrating picture books. Mm. So their community has young children and conceivably they are very interested in the product that my clients are in the middle of making. Mm. So you can see the connection. But if if you have a following based around, I don't know, your like one hobby. And it's really a question of, can you get your audience to follow you into another hobby Mm. or into, into the thing that you're, you're doing now? So platform can matter. If you are a massive celebrity, you know, with millions of followers, then of course the equation to publishers is like, well, at least some of those are going to translate into book sales. Mm. But in terms of like, is 5,000 the magic number or 50,000 or 500,000? I think it matters a little less than how clearly the platform and what they're all about connects to the book that's being published. 
Sherry Kramer had asked, what is your biggest pet peeve that you see in aspiring or new authors? So pet peeve, I think, is an unfair way to identify yourself (laughs) as a writer. I don't think anyone sets out to push someone else's buttons unless they're an internet troll, um, which most (laughs) writers are not. But I I was thinking about this. You sent me these questions earlier, and I thought this was an interesting one. I'm going to broaden it a little bit and say, you know, kind of some of the places I think early stage writers or early stage publishing authors, et cetera, can go wrong. Does that feel like a, a fair interpretation of it? Yes, absolutely. So I think one is focusing, I think, on on maybe the wrong thing at the wrong time. When you're in the stage of becoming an trying to like get published, most of your attention should be on the thing that you're writing. It shouldn't be on trying to understand everything possible about the publishing industry. You know, like I see a lot of people be like, okay, I'm going to try to write a novel. So that means I have to learn everything about publishing. It's like, no, whoa, first you have to write the novel Mm. and then you have to write the next draft of the novel and probably several more drafts and find a community maybe of critique partners and like that's your first job and most often by the time you have finished that process the publishing industry is going to have morphed and changed anyway because it is a constantly evolving amoeba of a mechanism and like like it publishing isn't static and i think that's a mistake a lot of people make that what worked when I started reading or when I started writing is what's working now. Mm -hmm. And it almost never is, whether that's marketing techniques like we were talking about earlier or trends or any of it. Because as an author, you're just trying to write the story that's compelling to you. And that's your job as an author. But once you start thinking about, okay, where does art meet commerce, which is the business of publishing, then you're looking at the existing canon of books and how does my story fit into them? And have I have I written a story that's truly never been told before? Or have I written a story that that has been told many times before and maybe there's less space for? And and it, it's sort of like different questions at different times. So I think being honest with yourself about like what needs to hold your attention, because we only have so much time in our days. And it's it's hard to become an expert writer at the same time that you're becoming an expert on understanding the publishing community and all of its ins and outs. So I think doing things in the right order are important. I think not getting overly distracted by the anecdotes of other writers. I, I think a lot about what the value of literary agents is. And when I talk to my clients when I'm first signing them, which I talk about, you know, like, what does it mean to have an agent? And what is it that I'm doing for you? And yes, of course, I'm helping you find an editor and I'm vetting your contracts and I'm working on your foreign rights and and any number of other things. You know, I'm feeling figuring out what do we do when your book is delayed because the printer is delayed because of coronavirus, you know, like, Mm, we are keeping an eye on all of it. So that our clients time and energy is focused on writing. That's the thing that they can do that nobody else can do. Nobody else can tell their story. So like my job as an agent, probably the most important thing that I do is I help you protect your creative space. And I say, don't worry about all of these things that are happening. When it's something you need to worry about, I'm going to come talk to you. But the rest of the time, I'm 
monitoring these things. Mm. Your job is to be the writer. So I think that's that's one value that that agents bring. But another another real value that we bring is a breadth of experience and context for it all. I think when you're a writer who's first starting to connect with other writers, all you know that's possible for good or for bad is what's happened to the handful of other writers you know. And as agents, and even as as editors, as publishing professionals, we have seen the publishing scenario play out endless times for, you know, in my case, going on two decades. So it's not to say that I know more than other editors or other, other writers do, but it's really easy to get fixated on exactly what's happening at this moment in time or that's happened to the writers that you know most personally and think overly about those things. And part of what an agent does is give you the context of like, well, that's happening, but it's happening because of this and that that happened 10 years ago in publishing. And, you know, like it's, we're able to give, I think, a a bigger picture, Mm. which hopefully means that our clients spend less time worrying and more time creating because worrying and anxiety are kind of the enemy of imagination. Yes. And ideally we want our clients as an agency, one of the things we talk about a lot at Root Literary is that we want our clients to be really well educated about what's happening in their careers so that they're not becoming alarmists yeah. anytime they hear about something happening to another writer, yeah. that, that they are in control of their own careers, that they have an understanding of what's happening. Ooh. And hopefully that that depth of understanding and sort of education in what's happening then allows them to, instead of spending too much time sort of mentally spiraling, let's put their energy toward writing. So it it all connects, I think. Those are kind of abstract things, but they're things that I've been thinking about. You know, the fact is writers can be connected in such a different way than they used to be. And that's beneficial in so many ways and occasionally sends people down like paths of worry that they don't maybe need to spend as much time down. I've been thinking a lot about the relationship between knowledge and fear and anxiety. And like, we know more than we ever have, I think, as humans in the world today. But that also means there are more things that we get anxious about and worry about. And publishing is, is certainly a hotbed of those things, because you also have people who have a very high degree of imagination. And mm-hmm. so the minute they start worrying about something, they often go to the worst case scenario because yeah. they're, they're really good at, at pushing at the boundaries of things. This is so nice to hear. Very, very cool just to see this behind the scenes, ways of how you do what you do. Kind of along the same lines on the opposite spectrum is query letters. If you could give us like a vague look at examples that really stood out to you, you don't even have to share the author's name, just like examples of things they did that were just like pop and you just were, whoo, I am all about this. I'm all ears. I'm all eyes. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm going to give you two sort of examples based on clients of mine. And they're two very different examples. So one I, I mentioned just briefly a little while ago, my client Lynn Kelly is a writer who I met for the first time at a writer's conference about 12 years ago. She writes middle grade and we had a critique session where 
I sat down for 10 or 15 minutes and we talked about her first 10 pages of her manuscript. And we had a conversation that I don't always get to have with writers in this sort of scenario where I said, I have actually very little to say about these pages because they're really strong and they're really polished. And if this is the state that your whole manuscript is in, you're probably ready to do something with it. And she said, well, I've been thinking about getting an agent. I said, okay, you know, when, and, and I was, this was in my sort of baby editor days. And I said, when you get that agent, have her send me this manuscript. And so a few months later, she did get that agent and the agent sent me the manuscript and it was beautifully written and it was completely the wrong kind of manuscript for me. It was literary. It was a little bit quiet and it was not the sort of thing that a publisher as commercially oriented as Harper was at that time was the right publisher for. Mm. And so I passed on it because I knew that someone else would do a better job publishing it than, than we would. And that if, if I tried to publish it, it might not sort of reach the fullness of its potential. But I had stayed in touch with Lynn because we'd met at this conference. It was the early days of social media. So like we were all starting to follow each other on Twitter or Facebook or whatever it was at that point. And, you know, occasionally she would post about good things happening for her career and I would cheer her on or I would, you know, Mm. post articles that I had run across that had something to do with her story, I would share them with her because she was clearly thinking about interesting ideas. Fast forward a good number of years, you know, she published that book, it came out, it did exactly kind of what it was intended to do. It got some state reading list nominations and some starred reviews and it, it found an audience. And Lynn took some time away from writing, dealt with some family stuff. Eventually, she and that agent parted ways for a variety of reasons. And so right about the time that I started agenting, she was looking for a new agent. And she queried me and said, you know, we've been connected on social media for a long time. So like, you know who I am. And we met all those years ago. And you know that I used to have this agent, but we're, we're no longer working together. And Before we parted ways, we went out with this manuscript, which she attached and, you know, got a small number of agents or editors said no to it. But I'm interested in seeing, you know, would a different agent be able to do something different with it? And I read it and I thought, I can kind of see why this didn't get yes from editors. There wasn't wasn't quite a whole story yet. But the thing that Lynn did in her in her query letter, and it has less to do with the fact that I already knew her and maybe more to do with the fact that she piqued my interest is in that same query letter where she sort of explained like all of the history that had happened since we'd been connected. She also said, and I'm also writing this other story about a deaf girl and this whale. And she linked to an article about a whale that is known on the internet as the loneliest whale in the world. Oh, so cute. Exactly. Right. (laughs) So there's this whale that in the 70s or 80s, scientists discovered this whale who communicates at the wrong hertz level to be a whale, like the way it's making noise. It should not actually be a whale, but based on their sonar and radar, they can tell from its size that there's nothing else it could be, right? Because whales are the largest thing in the ocean. So, and this whale has been swimming around the oceans for decades now, and it's always alone. Oh, Molly, my heart. Stop. Okay. 
Oh, jeez. <laughs> which is exactly the response that the whole world has to this whale, which is why it's known as the loneliest whale in the world. So, so Lynn linked and said, I'm writing a story about a deaf girl and this whale. And I knew from, from the connections we'd had before that Lynn's career on, you know, her for the last several decades has been that she's a sign language interpreter. Yeah. So she wasn't just randomly plucking a deaf girl out of her brain as an idea, but like, this is, this is a world that she is very familiar with. And just like your brain did, and probably our listeners, when you, you have this idea of there's a whale that can't communicate because of sort of a, a unique set of circumstances and a deaf girl who has a unique set of circumstances, you can see how those stories go together. And so I wrote back to Lynn and I said, you know, for a variety of reasons, the thing that you sent me, it doesn't feel like that's your best shot toward publishing your next book. But that thing that you told me you're writing, I will see that as soon as it is ready, <laughs> send it to me. I want to read it. And, you know, was able to articulate how intriguing that idea was enough that she was like, okay, I guess I'm going to go finish writing this book. And when she did, wow. she sent it to me. And that book is called Song for a Whale. We sold it in a big auction. It just oh. won the Schneider Award, which is a, an award the American Library Association gives for books that talk about the experience of disability. And it's a really wonderful book that's out in the world. And I think Lynn and I both like telling this story to other writers because it is, again, the, the long con. Um, that's probably going to be like the, the episode name you give this, like Molly O'Neill, Agent and Long Con. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, there, there is something powerful, I think, in the story of it took a long time, but publishing is a long career. And I turned down her first book, but she didn't take it so personally that she never wrote again or that she yeah. communicated with me again. She heard me say, like, I'm not the right person to embark on this journey with you. Here are the reasons why. And then very happily, there came a time when it made every reason in the world for us to work together. It's insane to me. It's just like you and Holly, your stories <laughs> together, like how you guys ended up not partnering up for the book that she was trying to pitch to you when you were an editor. But look, you're working alongside of each other now. You have such amazing full circle stories, I'm telling you. Oh my gosh. Molly, when is your book coming out? Jeez, hello. I'm waiting here, okay? Now I'm going to plant that seed. I love a full circle. I think similarly, the other query I'll tell you about really briefly, it's a similar sort of thing. And I think it speaks to the larger thing that, that I'm sort of saying to the writers out there who are listening. So this was a very straightforward query from a writer of young adult named Adib Karam. Adib I never had heard his name before. Unlike Lynn, who I had sort of a, a unique history with, I'd never heard Adib's name until he showed up in my inbox. He sent a pretty succinct query. It was strong. It was well-written. It was clear that he hadn't just written one draft and hit send on the query, that like he'd done the work. When I have writers query me, I have them send me their query letter in their first 10 pages. So between the strength of the query and the strength of the opening pages, I had set it aside to read more, which is something that I think agents and editors do all the time. We we think this could be good. I'm going to wait till I have time to read it, <laughs> which, you know, sometimes means that the things that are promising get a slower response than we mean for them to. So I had set it aside to give it attention soon. And then, you know, eventually I got a note from him that said, actually, I have an offer 
on this project. And, oh, now I've got to read fast. Um, and so then I did have to get into the the beauty pageant with some other agents because I was not <laughs> the only one who wanted this project. And we, we got on the phone and had a really good conversation in which I told him that I had finished reading his manuscript over a bad lunch salad <laughs> in Midtown Manhattan. <laughs> the thing that, that really sort of caught my eye in his query letter, aside from the fact that just it was... He was clearly, uh, Adib is Iranian-American. His book, Darius the Great is Not Okay, is about an an Iranian-American kid. So he was clearly writing from a, a place of lived experience. But the thing that really intrigued me is while a lot of the story is about Darius, the character in his book, going to Iran for the first time and meeting family for the first time that he's never met before, the last line of Adib's query letter said, I've never been to Iran. It's complicated. Uh, mm. And went on to explain that his father had been born and raised there. Mm. But there was something about the, I've never been to Iran. It's complicated. That just, I was like, I want to, I want to know that story. Yeah. Right. And, and I find over and over the thing that draws me into a story, whether it's the title, whether it's the first page or whether it's the query letter is make me curious and make me wonder. I think a mistake a lot of writers make is they feel like the first page is where they just need to explain everything. Or a lot of writers get the advice that they need to fill it up with a bunch of action. So I get so many openings of books that start like, you know, so-and-so ran in the door, threw down his backpack, grabbed a snack, yelled at his dog, ran up the stairs. And it's like, okay, you're filling it up with action, but it's not actually telling me anything. It's just feeling over choreographed and busy. Mm. But if you can capture my curiosity and make me wonder enough that your query letter makes me want to keep reading the pages or that your title makes me want to open the book and read the flap copy or read the first page or your first page makes me wonder enough that I want to turn the pages. Like then I'm yours as an audience. And like, Mm -hmm. I'm yours as a reader, which is the first step because agents too are just highly trained readers. So the same thing that any reader wants out of a book is what an agent wants out of a book or a first page or a title or a query letter. It all connects. Okay, this ties in perfectly with our last listener question from Tiffany Smith. Do you have any editors or agents, websites, blogs, or other resources you would recommend for tips and examples or current publishing news to unpublished writers that you believe would genuinely benefit writers overall? So in terms of like, are there websites or are there articles or things like that. There are plenty of websites. There are maybe too many websites at this point. Mm -hmm. You know, I think 88 Cups of Tea as a community is one of them. There is the entirety of Twitter, which is actually a very valuable place for writers who at the right part of their journey to start connecting in because it is kind of the water cooler of the whole industry. If, Mm -hmm. If you can stand being on Twitter enough to participate in it. I think it's, it's where we all talk. I sometimes talk to people who are like Twitter, that's like an old thing. What, who still uses Twitter? We're all on <laughs> Instagram or TikTok or Snapchat or like whatever the thing is, right? Like it's where yeah. the, where the teens are. But I think publishing has held on to Twitter because largely we are words people and words 
and conversation happen, I think, most easily on Twitter. It's a place where you can have a conversation with people who you're not already friends with, who you're not already connected to, who aren't already following you. And you can also lurk on a lot of conversations, yes. which sometimes is is the right thing for readers. So I do think in terms of keeping a pulse on the conversations happening today and in this moment in time, Twitter is is a real-time place. You know, I think paying attention to Instagram most Agencies like we have a root literary Instagram that we keep really active with what's happening for our books and our authors. Subscribing to Publishers Weekly Kids Bookshelf is actually a great place. Publishers Weekly is the trade organization of booksellers, but their weekly newsletter comes out twice a week, totally free. It has a variety of things. And it's, it's always about what's happening sort of in this moment in time. So it's interviews, it's reviews, it's some reports on what books are selling, what publishing people are moving where, what the conversations that are happening right now in publishing are. And it's because it's reporting and, and not just one person's blog feed or social media account, I think it's a little bit broader of a lens than sometimes happens in in just one place. You know, once upon a time, I feel like I had a whole list, you know, when we all had blogs, we used to have like our list of like, these are all the other blogs to go read at. But some of those, you know, have faded away. A lot of the resources that are out there now are from a different moment in publishing, or they're, they're telling you about a different kind of publishing than what you want to do. So I think paying attention to the larger industry conversations is actually a little bit more of where I recommend people to pay attention to now. That's on the on the paying attention to the industry side. On the craft side, there are so many great books out there. There are retreats that you can go on with other writers if if you have the ability to kind of buy yourself time and space to go write. But even if you don't, there there are great resources out there. There are writers doing master classes, things like that. If you go on my website, which is Molly O'Neill Books or on the agency website, I think we might have it there too. But I have some recommended reading. Maybe what I'll do is I'll send you the link to that question. But I, I do have a list of my favorite sort of craft books. Awesome. And I'm I'm happy to share those. I think the other thing that I will just generally say, and it, it's something I like to say to aspiring writers and, and illustrators, is if you are hoping that someday this industry is going to support you, that it's important that you support it. You know, mm -hmm. if you want people to buy your book one day, it's important that you be buying people's books because mm. that's where like readers come from. And when I say buy books, I actually mean that as a broader catch-all, right? Because I know we don't all have endless resources, right? So I say buy books, but I could just as easily say, if you want people to check out your books from libraries, it's important that you check out books from libraries. Or if you hope that people are going to show up at your book events at bookstores, then you should go do some of that yourself. Like you have to sort of put into the community and, and not only hope to quite literally cash out from it. And if you're doing those things, if you're showing up at events at your local library or local bookstore, chances are you're going to be putting yourself in contact with 
other like-minded readers and writers. And that may well, you know, the person you're standing next to in line to say hello to a writer that you admire may end up being someone that you start meeting with and building a critique group with Mm. or become part of a book group with. So I think engaging in the culture of being a reader and a consumer of books, if that's, if you want to eventually be on the other side of it, like just showing up and being like, okay, everyone do things for me now. Maybe you will have built more opportunities for yourself if, if you were one time on the other side of it. This was incredible. I'm going to wrap it up with rapid fire questions right now. So money, real talk, finances, surviving as artists, any advice or words of wisdom you want to share from your perspective, seeing many authors through their careers and, you know, even knowing yourself what it's like to survive in New York City. Yeah. I mean, the first advice we give writers when they get a book deal, particularly their first book deal, is go meet with an accountant Mm. because often it's a big chunk of money in a way that has not arrived in your bank account before. And what big chunk of money means is sort of irrelevant, right? For some people, a big chunk of money is $10,000 or $5,000. Like it it doesn't just have to be when you get some astronomically sized book deal. Um, No one else in your publishing ecosystem, your editor, your agent, your writing friends, none of those are equivalents for someone who can give you professional advice as a financial advisor, as an accountant about how to maximize um, this money and how to make it work for you and how to help it support what you're trying to do next. So I think sometimes we do have to spend money to make money a little bit, right? And that is a very, it's not a sexy expense of money, but it can be really, really valuable. And I think when you get paid in advance, it is partly about the hope that the publisher has of what your book is going to sell like, but it is not an indicator of your worth as a human. And it's really easy to get those things sort of mentally, emotionally tangled up. Sometimes it has a lot of what advances have to do with our what's happening in the industry at that moment. And so sometimes you get paid a big advance because you've written an astonishing thing, but sometimes it's a combination of things. You've written something astonishing and also the editor just started a new job and is trying to like establish themselves as a powerful editor in this new job. And like there can be these these sort of outside market forces that have to do with why your book is getting bought the way that it is. And so I think to just assume that the money I receive is somehow an indication of my value or what value the publisher is putting on me. Like it it can get really warped really fast if you're not careful. So I think the best advice I can give people is to find your value in yourself separate from the money that you are being paid. Next rapid fire question. If you were a mentor, what is one advice you would share? And overall, how important is it to have a mentor in your life or career? I've had many mentors. I've been many people's mentor, I think. I'm not sure a mentor is something you can simply decide one day to have. It usually is that you put yourself in in relationships and they evolve into mm. 
mentoring. But in some ways, my role as an agent is to mentor my clients, to mentor them through the parts of the business that I have seen play out many times that are Mm -hmm. new for them. A piece of advice that I give my clients a lot is that the minute you start getting paid for your writing, it intrinsically changes your relationship with it. It is no longer this thing that you do purely as a hobby, purely as a creative outlet. It is something that has deadlines and expectations and financials tied to it. And it changes your relationship with it. It's like it's like a matter change from like water from from a liquid into a solid almost. Mm-hmm. Like it's that kind of like organic change. So I I often tell my clients, and I think the ones who are happiest in their careers are the ones who've who've listened to it and and not they're not happiest because they listen to me, but who really took this to heart is now it's time for you to go find a new creative outlet because you've just turned your old creative outlet into work. Mm-hmm. And so you as a creative human need an outlet. You need a thing that you can be bad at. You need a thing where it doesn't matter. You need a thing that can actually fully absorb your attention so that you have a certain period of time once a day or once a week or whatever it is where you're not thinking about publishing. You're not even thinking about your story. You're just focused on whatever this new thing is, whether you're learning to knit or getting good at making bread or, you know, becoming a runner or, you know, any number, like what the hobby is matters so much less than giving yourself another place to just be a growing human. Mm, So good. Okay. Last and final rapid fire question. What are small manageable steps you would advise writers to take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals? And I think I find this particularly interesting to hear it from your perspective. There are a lot of people in the world who want to be writers. The ones that I see who actually make it to the other side of that ambition and, and become writers are the ones who have figured out the correct ways to trick their own brains into doing the work. The truth of it is like we would almost all rather have done the thing than be in the act of doing it. Mm. So figuring out for yourself, what motivates you? You know, I have some clients that when we talk about like, okay, what's your next step for some, the next step requires accountability for some, that's what keeps them on track for some. It's, you know, a certain amount of guilt or a certain amount of wanting to please or having very specific immediate goals. So I think if I'm talking most broadly to an audience of writers, I don't know rather than a single one that I do, it's figure out for yourself what motivates you and connect it somehow to your writing, you know, and, and that doesn't have to be a a financial thing. It doesn't have to be the, like, you know, when I finish this chapter, I get to go get a manicure or get to go buy a book or something. It can be like, when I finish this, I get to text my best friend Mm. or someone who, wants this win for me almost as I want it for myself. So finding out the the right ways to motivate yourself. And sometimes that means trying different techniques and learning like what actually moves the needle on yourself. Like there, there is a certain degree of self-awareness involved in, in being a successful writer because what works for someone else may not work for you. And that's the, as true of creative process stuff as it is the sort of emotional component of it all. I also am a huge advocate of 
the fact that not all writing happens at your desk or in front of your laptop or like hands on screen or pencil. Some of it does. You you have to do some of that if you want to actually create it. <laughs> but I think sometimes, you know, we live in this world where we're all reading the same viral articles mm. and following the same, you know, social threads and the same conversations. And sometimes you have to throw yourself far outside of that to find a story that's really yours mm. or else you're writing the same book that five other people are that same week. You know, like there was yeah. just this thing that happened on the internet a couple weeks ago. There was this adorable video that went around of a coyote and a badger who were like hunting together. And there was this really cute video of them basically like looking like Disney characters, like oh. marching down a log together or whatever. <laughs> you know, I sort of jokingly said to the internet, like, I'm just waiting for two months from now when all of the coyote and badger are friends. Yep manuscripts pop into my inbox because everyone saw this and went, oh, that should be a children's book. But like only one of those, if any of them, has really any chance of becoming the book, right? Like yeah. we can't do 10 versions of the same book. So it's important to put yourself into spaces where you can get ex inspired on a regular basis in a way that's unique to you. So whether that's like sending yourself on a museum trip once every so often, or going and listening to the symphony, or taking a walk down a road that you've never walked down before, or taking a drive, you know, on a different route, like, those are the kind of places that wake us up a little, because it's a different experience and activate imagination. And like, that's where originality often comes from. Because very often as writers, we start by writing or thinking about the sort of cliches and generic things. And uh, often behind the like good idea or okay idea is the truly brilliant original idea. But we have to be willing to walk past the like, mm, this might be a good idea mm. to like, no, like this is the story that I have to tell with my whole heart. Like that's where you want to be arriving. And so how do you get there? Usually it's by finding your own path. Okay, Molly, we get it. You can have a masterclass. Yes, we will follow you to the end of the earth. Yes, okay. That was brilliant. That was so good. So eye-opening. So helpful. Very educational. Thank you so very much for dropping these knowledge bombs left and right again and again. Please let all of our listeners know where they can find you online to say hi and thank you for all of your time with us. Sure thing. So our agency, Root Literary, is at Root Literary on Twitter and on Instagram. You can also find our website that has agency-wide submission guidelines at rootliterary.com. I, as a human individual <laughs> agent, person in the world have a website of my own, which is mollyoneillbooks.com. It also repeats our submission guidelines and has some other, you know, thoughts about like what I'm looking for, what I'm not looking for. It has in the FAQ, those craft books that I recommend on Twitter. I am at Molly underscore O'Neill on Instagram. I am at Molly O'Neill books. 
I'm verified on Twitter, so I can't change it to match all of my other <laughs> social stuff. It's exactly the opposite of what I always tell clients, like get your same account on everything. Like I'm, I'm the bad example, but I have the blue checks. I don't even <laughs> remember how I got it, but I have it. So everywhere else, I am mollyoneillbooks.com. But on Twitter, I am molly underscore O'Neill. And that wraps up part two of my conversation with Molly O'Neill. Molly, I cannot thank you enough for sharing so much wisdom and publishing industry tips that I am sure will inspire us all to keep working on improving our craft and reaching our writing goals. Thank you so much for this conversation. And storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to stop by and say hi to Molly on Twitter at Molly underscore O'Neill and on Instagram at Molly O'Neill Books. To find all the resources and books that Molly mentions throughout both part one and part two of her episodes, along with the tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout our entire conversation, head on over to Molly's show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash Molly O'Neill. And don't forget to RSVP to our five-year anniversary online party that we are so excited to celebrate with our community by heading over to 88cupsofteacom slash RSVP. Can't wait to see you all this Saturday, August 8th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and that's 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And I'll catch you then. And I'll also catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that. 